Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share with you that my book, Work Better Together, will be published this summer. This book is all about how to cultivate strong relationships to maximize well-being and create a more human-centered workplace. It's inspired by conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you. So check it out. It's available for pre-order on Amazon now. I've been very open and transparent about my life experiences with burnout and breast cancer. But there's another life challenge that I've not talked a lot about on this podcast. It's my daily struggle with anxiety. And I know that my experience is not uncommon. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders affect 18% of adults age 18 and older and 25% of children between 13 and 18 in the United States. Even though anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in this country, they are still often misunderstood and therefore go undiagnosed and untreated. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Brewer is a renowned psychiatrist and neuroscientist and the associate professor at the Brown University School of Public Health. His extensive research into anxiety and the addictive behaviors it drives spans over two decades. He is also the author of the book, Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Well, Dr. Brewer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation, uh, probably selfishly, as someone who who lives with anxiety. Um, I think uh, this is going to be a little bit of a personal therapy session with you and I <laughs> for the world to listen to and hopefully learn from. Awesome. <laughs> Let's start out learning a little bit about you. Um, tell us your story, how you became passionate about researching anxiety, I think addiction um, in the beginning, but a, a, a term that I've heard you lovingly call me search. <laughs> yes. Well, this started with, well, my anxiety actually uh, started back in college. I didn't even know I had anxiety. I thought I had, you know, something, a GI bug where I was infected, you know, with a parasite from backpacking. And when I went to the student health doc, you know, he said, oh, could, you know, do you think this could be stress? And I was thinking, you know, I said to him, no, it couldn't be. You know, I, I'm i vegetarian. I, I run. I play the violin. I, you know, I can't be anxious. And he was like, OK. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't even know what anxiety was back in college. And, you know, fast forward, you know, 10 years after, you know, later. So I'd, I'd finished my MD, PhD program, had been starting uh, my residency in psychiatry and was really getting into research around helping people with addictions. And there I was seeing a commonality between some of the concepts that we'd uh, we'd been taught in basic psychology around operant conditioning, positive and negative reinforcement, things like that, and how uh, addictions form. And then also been seeing some parallels with how I'd been working with my own stress around uh, learning to meditate myself. I'd started meditating my first day of medical school. And that started to bring together some things that were really interesting, led to a, an avenue of exploration around how to efficiently and effectively help people 
overcome addictions and break bad habits. You know, we'd done work around alcohol and cocaine use disorder. We even did a study with smoking where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We'd extended that to even developing app-based trainings to help, you know, make these things available to anybody basically. And it gotten a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And at that time, I was in my outpatient clinic, mainly just prescribing medications for anxiety. That's what I've been trained to do in medical school. And there was this, there's this uh, term in medicine called the number needed to treat, which means how many patients you need to treat with a certain treatment, say a medication, before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. For our gold standard class of medications, are you ready for this? It's 5.2, which means I have to treat five patients before one shows a significant Uh. reduction in symptoms. So here I was playing the medication lottery, just trying to help people, you know, not knowing which of my patients was going to benefit. And then I wasn't sure what I was going to do with the other 80%. And at this time, I was I was just completing some of this work with these this app-based mindfulness training for eating. And somebody in that program said, hey, could you make a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I prescribe medications, but it put a bug in my ear to mm-hmm. go and look it up. And lo and behold, there was some overlooked literature from the 1980s suggesting that anxiety could be driven in the same manner as other habits. And I was thinking, wow, I never thought about that. And then I was thinking, oh, I can do, I know how to work with habits. So we developed this program. And as a researcher, I wanted to study to see if, you know, if we could actually approach habits or approach anxiety in the same way that we'd been tackling other habits. And long story short, we did a couple of clinical studies. We got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in anxious physicians. We did another study with people with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 67% reduction. And there we could calculate that number needed to treat. And are you ready for this? 1.6. So relative to medication, you know, it was was over five. Yeah, it was 1.6. So that's, (laughs) that's kind of how I got into it. Wow. Um, Well, thank you from all of us (laughs) that needed this research. Um, You, you, you have said um, that, that we're all addicted to something. Um, can you explain what you mean by this and, and share some everyday examples of, of why this is in, in our modern world? I'd be happy to. I learned this definition of addiction that was simple and just rang really true to me in back when I was in residency. The definition was continued use despite adverse consequences. Just listen to that again. Continued use despite adverse consequences. So this to me, you know, I was learning about cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, you know, alcohol, tobacco, and I was thinking, okay, classic substances, but continued use despite adverse consequences says, wait a minute, you know, this starts to explain things like why texting while driving was shown to be as dangerous as drunk driving. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, people can get addicted to texting and, you know, it's just as dangerous. This can apply to social media. This can apply to people you know, binge watching their favorite shows. This could apply to any behavior, you know, continued use despite adverse consequences. I guess once you learned that, you you kind of took your work in behavior change and your understanding about habits and you applied this to everyday addiction and habit loops. Can you talk a little bit about that and explain what habit loops are? 
Yes. So habit loops are basically habits that are formed you know, in a simple process where it, it takes three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. And from an evolutionary standpoint, this was set up for us to help you know, help it to help us survive. So you think of we we need two basic things: we need to eat and we need to not be eaten. You know, so our ancient ancestors who didn't have refrigerators or food delivery or anything like that, they had to go out every day and find food, and then they had to remember where it was and go find it the next day. So you can imagine our ancestors out there foraging for food. They see the food. There's a trigger. So that's the first element, a trigger. They eat the food. There's the second element. That's the behavior. And then their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So that's the third element, the reward or the result from a a direct standpoint or an experiential standpoint. So a trigger behavior result is what's needed to form any habit loop. So if it's something that's pleasant, like, ooh, you know, eating some nutritious food, our brain learns, okay, do that again. It feels good. If something's unpleasant, like we get scared and we run away from some danger, that negative quality of that experience drives what's called negative reinforcement because it is making something unpleasant go away. Both of those help us survive. And both of those are still hundred percent at play in modern day life. We, you know, we learn to eat, we learn to stress eat, for example, or we learn to procrastinate uh, through negative reinforcement. Uh, we learn to associate cake with parties and friends, you know, as early as our first birthday party. So, and, and this is, this is just fascinating to me and the, the wheels are turning and I've, I've also read your book and, and, and a, a bunch of articles that you've written. And, and one of the, the quotes um, that you took from Eckhart Tolle, uh, one of the greatest addictions you never read about in the papers because people don't know it is the addiction to thinking and the direct kind of translation or the direct correlation, if you will, about our addiction to thinking and and anxiety for those of us that that live with an anxiety disorder, but just in general, um, the way that anxiety presents itself in in our life and in our world. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by that connection and kind of the worry habit loop. So can mm-hmm. we dig into that? Yes, I'd be happy to. This has been one of the most fascinating yes. explorations <laughs> that I've had, both from a research standpoint and also from a clinical standpoint, because I've seen it have huge effects in real world situations with my patients. So, you know, you never think of anxiety as being a habit. It just seems like a feeling. And if you look at the dictionary definition, it's described that way, you know, a feeling of worry, nervousness, unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Yet if you look at that, if you double click on that definition, worry is not only a feeling, it's a noun, but it's also a verb, I worry. And so the noun of worry, so if somebody like my patients, they wake up in the morning and they just feel anxious, that feeling can trigger the mental behavior of worrying. And they start worrying, oh, why am I anxious or what's wrong or or whatnot? And that mental behavior drives more anxiety through negative reinforcement because it gives us this either a temporary distraction from the worst feeling, feeling of anxiety, 
where it makes us feel like we're in control. Like I'm going to solve this. I'm going to figure out what my anxiety is and I'm going to fix it. <laughs> the problem so, is- So we're worrying about worrying. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've never done that. <laughs> Actually, I do it every day, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So isn't that interesting that it starts to feed back on itself, especially because it doesn't actually put us in control and generally does not solve problems. So what's the strategy? What's the solution there? <laughs> so I'll tell <laughs> you. knew that, I was going to ask that. <laughs> yes. And I, I love the question because there is a common strategy that I would say most, if not all of us use or have used that is a dead end. And that is the willpower approach because mm -hmm. we think, you know, well, now that I see what the problem is, I'm just going to go in there and brute force and fix it. You know, I don't know how many of us have had parents that have said, just stop worrying or don't worry about this. <laughs> and if it's, you know, if it were as simple as like flipping that worry switch, <laughs> where we're, oh, there it is. Okay, I'll stop worrying. Then I could have my patients come in, you know, they walk into my office and they say, I worry too much. And I just say, okay, it's behind your ear. Let's just flip that switch. Okay, you're done. You know, no more worrying. That's not how it works, unfortunately. In fact, um, the prefrontal cortex, the thinking and planning part of our brain, ironically, it goes offline when we start worrying more and more. So we can't even use our thinking and planning part of our brain. So I just want to highlight that in case somebody says, oh, you know, I've just mapped out my worry habit loop. I can stop listening and just go, you know, go fix it. That's not how our brains work. How our brains do work is based on this reward-based learning system, positive and negative reinforcement. And our brains are going to set a reward value of a certain behavior based on previous experience. And if we don't pay attention to how rewarding it is now, as compared to how rewarding it was in the past, we're just going to keep doing it habitually. That's what habit loops are all about. So the only way to change that is to actually update the reward value based on one simple thing, which is awareness. Awareness is what helps us see how rewarding something is in the present moment. I'm gonna give, I'll give an example of eating to make this super clear and then we'll bring it to worry and how to apply it there. So the, the formula, and this was developed back in the 70s, the mathematics of this is, or based on some work by these two researchers, Wascorla and Wagner. And basically what they, what they showed, and this is still true today, this is a very, very well-established paradigm, was that you know, current reward value is based on past reward value plus an error term. And that error term is called a positive or a negative prediction error. So for example, if we've laid down the reward value of chocolate cake in our mind, it's like, oh yeah, chocolate cake tastes pretty good. We go to a new bakery and our brain says, oh, that cake looks pretty good. If we eat the cake and it's really good, our brain says, ooh, that's really good chocolate cake. And we get what's called a positive prediction error because it's better than expected. And what that does is it updates the reward value and reminds us or basically lays down the memory that says, okay, this is a good bakery. Come back here. Okay. So we update that reward value and we learn, you know, eat cake from this place. If we go there and we eat the cake and we're like, eh, eh, I've had better. We get this negative prediction error where it doesn't meet expectations. It's an, it says not as good as I expected. And we lay down this memory that says, oh, don't go back there. You know, go to, go to another place that's better. So our brains lay down this whole reward hierarchy so it's easy to make decisions and we know basically where to go. So how does this apply to worry? Well, our brains have laid down this reward value of worrying based on how much we've done it in the past and how rewarding it might have been in the past. It's a habit. 
The only way to update that is to bring awareness in right now and bring in those error terms where we say, well, what am I getting from this? Is worrying actually helping me perform better? That's a big one that I see. People think, oh, if I'm not anxious, I'm not going to perform well. No data to support that. It's not actually true. We form these false associations. We think that worrying is going to help us perform better. If we see that worrying actually makes it harder for us to perform, then that negative error comes in and we say, oh, it's not that great. If it doesn't help us solve a problem, that negative prediction error comes in. And if we see that worrying actually just makes us more anxious, that's the key one. We, in any one moment, when we're worrying, we can say, what am I getting from this? Well, it's just making me more worried and more anxious. There's another negative prediction error. All of that is just based on one simple thing, awareness, just paying attention to that cause and effect mm -hmm. relationship. So what is the difference between worry and anxiety. So worry causes anxiety or how do you delineate between those two? Yes, you can delineate them based on, you can think of anxiety as that feeling where, okay. you know, it's that feeling, it, it tends to feel restless, uh, closed down, contracted, you know, ner you know, that nervous feeling. Whereas worry is the mental behavior where our mind is racing. Oh, what about this? What about that? Does that make sense? That does make sense. And I guess anxiety, you can feel, you know, in your body too, right? It's not just in your, in your brain, I guess. There's yes. physiological. Yes. That's typically where people feel anxiety is, is really in the body. And okay. one other way to think about this is we can have a feeling of anxiety, but we don't have to worry, right? Because mm. worry is on top of the feeling of anxiety. Anxiety tends to trigger the mental behavior of worrying. I assume, you know, every human experiences anxiety from time to time, but at what point does anxiety become a disorder? Well, this is where, you know, it's it's uh, it's in the eye of the beholder really. You know, if okay. you look at the and the psychiatrist bible for diagnoses, you know, we have a bunch of criteria, but honestly, it's not that helpful to memorize a list of things. I can barely remember it myself and I've been a practicing psychiatrist <laughs> for a long time. One of the aspects that I find very helpful is, you know, I guess going back to this definition of addiction, you know, continued use despite adverse consequences. So mm -hmm. if the feeling of anxiety is getting in the way of our daily lives, whether it's personally, whether it's professionally, whether it's interpersonally, like our relationships, that's when it, that's when we think of it as, you know, something where it, it becomes a little more disordered. Uh, I, I tend not to, I don't like the term disorder in the yeah. sense, because, you know, <laughs> Uh, one thing that I, you know, I think of it as conditions and there's one condition that we all share, which is the human condition. Yeah. <laughs> and, I like that a lot better. <laughs> yeah. And then there's, you know, there's just stuff where it's like our brains are slightly tweaked this way or that way as compared to there's something wrong with us. And I mean, I think despite its prevalence, it, it I think it is really misunderstood. Um, I mean, are, the, are there, are there things that we should know or miss that we should dispel about um, anxiety or people that live with anxiety or how we can support those that live with anxiety? One thing that I find very helpful, and I see this in my clinic, even in the first visit with a patient who's referred to me for anxiety, is just helping people understand how their minds work and helping them understand mm -hmm. you know, what anxiety is and how it can be perpetuated. 
So for example, and I, I write about some of this is, is the first section of the Unwinding Anxiety book, yeah. which which is around helping people see that there that fear is an evolutionarily adaptive process, right? Fear helps us learn things so that we can survive. Yet if you pair fear with uncertainty, you know, uncertainty is analogous to our stomach. So our stomach, when we don't have enough calories, when our stomachs are empty, our stomachs grumble and they say, go get some food. Our brain works in a similar manner. When our brain doesn't have information, when there's uncertainty, our brain kind of grumbles or rumbles and says, go get information. And that's adaptive, that's helpful. Yet when there is a lot of uncertainty or when there's too much information that we can't sort through and we can't figure out what is true or what's accurate, or we just don't have information, that can then spin out into anxiety. And so just knowing that can help people start to see, oh, you know, is there a bunch of, is there something that I don't know? Can I actually be okay with not knowing right now? Because really the only, the only certain thing is that there is uncertainty, you know, and, and the only unchanging thing is that there's constant change. So if we can really start to live into this idea that, oh, you know, things are constantly changing, there is uncertainty and that's okay. We can start to move from being locked in anxiety into um, moving into what I think of as, I think Carol Dweck put it nicely. She was a Stanford researcher who talks about growth mindset or the, our growth zone. You know, so if, if we can get paralyzed when there's, when there's a lot of uncertainty, we can move into our panic zone. Or when there's a lot of uncertainty, we can actually move into our growth zone and say, oh, you know, instead of, oh, no, we can say, oh. So that's the first thing I would say is helping people just understand, you know, okay, this is this is how our brain has kind of gone into a dead end around anxiety, but this is really what it's trying to do is help us get information. Can we be okay with not having information right now? The second thing I would that I find very helpful is just helping people see how anxiety can be driven through worry as a habit loop. That was probably the biggest thing. Yeah. Uh, that I found both from a research standpoint, but also from a clinical standpoint, even spending five minutes and mapping out a habit loop with a patient is tremendously illuminating for them because they can see how their mind goes from this black box of not knowing and kind of being pushed or pulled by anxiety to just seeing how this process is logical and self-perpetuating. And because they can see it clearly, they can actually start to step out of it. And then we can give them tools to do that. And so, for example, if I personalize this, um, I'm experiencing anxiety about something. Um, and I think my kind of immediate go-to or my habit is, you know, to fill in the blanks, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. of all of the things that I don't know. And my tendency is to fill in the blanks with all of the bad things that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then I convince myself that like, this is certain, right? Like certain, you know, this is certainly going to happen. There is no other option. I have figured it out. I'm just waiting for somebody to tell me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yes. So, so this is, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> yes. Yes. So how do I break that cycle? Well, the key there is to first just be able to see it, right? Yeah. If we can start to recognize these habit loops, even recognize, you know, what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result, that helps put us back in the driver's seat instead of being driven by anxiety. 
Um, and we've even, you know, we put together a free habit mapper that anybody can download and start mapping out their own habits this way. It's just on the website, mapmyhabit.com. So anybody can do that, start mapping them out. That's the first step. The second step, and I go into a lot of detail about this in my book because it's it's a really critical component around, you know, starting to see this reward value and tapping into it. You know, it's the the oldest, it's the strongest part of our brain, yet counterintuitively, it's the last place that we tend to go to to, to help us, you know, step out of these habits. So uh, this is where, you know, as I was mentioning before, we can bring awareness in and start to update that reward value in our brain by asking ourselves very simple questions like, you know, is worrying solving the problem? Generally not. Is it keeping my family safe? Generally not. Is it making me more anxious? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so just asking these simple questions and getting curious about like, what, what is this worry trying to do? And is it actually serving that function? That's what updates the reward value on how rewarding that mental behavior is in our brain. Once that gets updated, our brains start to become disenchanted with doing that more. Notice how that doesn't take effort. It only takes awareness and this, this curious attitude. We're like, huh, is this really serving me? No, it's not. That's the second step. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I want to dive into awareness um, and, and start talking about mindfulness and meditation. But I have one quick question before that, because you were talking about uncertainty and anxiety and we are living in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I was going to ask you how that's impacted the likelihood of us experiencing anxiety, but that almost feels like a silly question um, <laughs> when, I, when I say it out loud, right? Because, yeah. because we know, I mean, we know that, that the, the rate of anxiety and what people are experiencing has, has skyrocketed. And so yes. can you talk about kind of what you're seeing in your world with this? Yes. So whether it's my research world where we've seen a huge spike in 2020 in anxiety levels, which like you're saying is, is unsurprising, uh, this all relates to uncertainty. So, and it's really interesting to watch this over time. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all uncertain, you know, how dangerous is this thing, how, how transmissible is it? I don't know about you, but I certainly followed the standard practice of leaving all my, all my um, packages, delivered packages mm -hmm. outside of my house for three days, unless I absolutely had to bring them in because nobody knew, you know, could this, could this be that one completely unusual virus where no virus in history has been shown to actually survive on a, you know, on a surface in cold winter Massachusetts for very long at all. But I wasn't going to take that risk because it, I was, it was uncertain. My brain was saying, Hey, you know, let's, let's not be the first to die from the, the from the UPS package or whatever, right? So that was shown to be you know completely um, not an issue, but it took every, uh, took everybody a while to figure that out. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we're all this uncertainty. Now we're even seeing uncertainty around things like variants and around going back to normal, where people are having. I forget what the term is. Reentry anxiety. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So reentry anxiety, which is about uncertainty. So we've become, we've gotten the habit, gotten in the habit of whatever our pandemic habit is, whether it's working from home, whether it's wearing masks in public, whether it's not congregating with friends. And just thinking about congregating with friends without a mask can make people pretty anxious. Why? Yeah. Because it's uncertain, because they're, they haven't done it in a year. 
So this really highlights, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just that there's uncertainty and that's going to drive anxiety. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because if you rewind a year, our anxiety around you know, the uncertainty of, of, of the virus and the pandemic itself. And now that, you know, in some parts of the world, at least we're, you know, opening up a little bit more, we, we have become, you know, we've adapted to, to <laughs> you know, how it, it, it isn't ideal, right? I don't think any of us like it necessarily, but we've adapted to it. And um, I've certainly experienced some of that re-entry anxiety. Like, what are all these people doing here? Why are they around <laughs> me? Why are they? <laughs> so I can certainly relate to that. So let's shift and talk about um, mindfulness um, and how it can help break the cycle of anxiety. Because you, you, you've mentioned a couple times now about awareness and obviously mindfulness is an incredible practice um, to bring awareness to whatever situation you're in, actually. Yes. And so let's keep this simple and concrete because I think mindfulness can mean a bunch of different things to yeah. a bunch of different people. <laughs> so if you look at the elements or the way that I think of the elements of mindfulness are, you know, it's basically two sides of the same coin. One side is awareness and the other side is curiosity. Mm-hmm. So we can be aware of things and we can be judging them like crazy. We're like, oh, I see that and it sucks, right? So that's not <laughs> that's not what we're talking about here. It's about bringing awareness in and really not judging what's happening, but really trying to see things as accurately as possible, taking off all of our bias glasses. So that's that's what we're talking about here. And the reason I like to focus on those core elements is because those are the core elements that are not only needed to help us break unhelpful habits, but they're also the elements that can form helpful habits unto themselves. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, my lab had been studying habit change for a long time. And the first thing that we studied as we were looking at, you know, these these mechanisms of how habits form, you know, whether it's addictions or overeating or even, you know, worrying, was that you know they are formed through this reinforcement learning process. And as I mentioned, the only way to break that chain is through awareness itself. So their awareness can not only help us break these cycles, but it can also form a new cycle, a new healthy habit itself. And the reason I say that is because, you know, if you think about it, let's just take a concrete example, example of anxiety. So anxiety feels unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. So our brain says, okay, make this go away. Our typical, you know, old habits are where, especially if we don't know how it works, our brain's going to say, hey, do something to make this go away as quickly as possible. So we eat something or we watch television or we check our social media. You know, we do all these things that distract ourselves. But in fact, they only give us this brief relief and they create unhealthy habits unto themselves. You know, if we're procrastinating, we're not getting our work done, which leads to more anxiety. So awareness, uh, so if we look at anxiety and we even look at the results of these unhelpful habits, even if they give us this brief relief, they're still not fixing the root cause of the problem. But if we look at anxiety, the feeling of anxiety, and we compare that to the feeling of curiosity, that attitudinal quality, that comes with awareness when we're just truly trying to see things as they are, curiosity feels better. 
in fact, my lab, I mean, it seems like a no brainer, but my lab had to do the research to show that this is true. <laughs> when we look at 14 different mental states, anxiety is very low on the reward hierarchy and curiosity and also things like kindness and connection are mm -hmm. very high. And there's also another thing that's very interesting here, which is when we ask people to describe their experience, anxiety feels more closed or contracted Whereas curiosity feels more open and expanded. We're, we're, we're looking, you know, we're moving towards something so we can learn about it. That closed quality, well, let's put it this way. You can't be closed and open at the same time because they're binary opposites. So if we're closed down in anxiety, we can actually inject some curiosity, which starts to open us up because you can't be closed and open at the same time. So not only can we open up, but that feeling of opening feels better. So our brain's going to learn that. I, I think of this as the, the BBO, the bigger, better offer. Our brain's going to learn, oh, being curious about my anxiety is that bigger, better offer as compared to being lost or caught up in a cycle of anxiety and worry. And so how do we cultivate this type of awareness in our life? Um, just because I think it's and you've talked about this in, in a lot, well, during this discussion, but also in your book. I mean, it's it's easy to fall back on those old habits. So what is the process of cultivating this awareness? I assume it's just like, you know, changing behavior, changing or creating new habits. Yes. So here we can tap into our brains. And if, our, if we know that our brains are going to go to something that feels better, the key is for it forming any new habit is, you know, repeat it early and often. So it's like, you know, if we want to learn to tie our shoes, we practice tying our shoes a lot. If we want to learn to be curious, the nice thing is, is this is a capacity that we all have. We were actually all very good at it when we were kids <laughs> and it tends to get beaten out of us as adults. Uh, although we, we stopped asking why, right? You yes. Know, if you're a kid, you ask why constantly. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the, and our parents, I mean, some parents were better at, um, indulging those than others, but some parents were like, Oh, I don't, you know, I own time or whatever. Yeah. And we learn as a kid, okay, to stop asking why, just like yeah. you're saying, well, let's reintroduce that. Why in terms of that feeling of curiosity. So for example, and actually, this is a critical distinction. So as adults, uh, often when we're anxious, we'll, we'll start asking, oh, why am I anxious? And it leads us in a dead end of like trying to figure out what the problem is so we can mm. kind of squash it or solve it or avoid it. Here, I think of it as bringing curiosity in to asking what's happening right now as compared to why is this happening? Because if we're anxious, it's already happening. It doesn't matter what, what caused it to happen in that moment. And the what is happening, we can start to explore it in this and cultivate our curiosity by asking, oh, what does this feel like in my body? So for example, if we're anxious, I'm just feeling into my own experience. So for me, anxiety feels kind of tight in my shoulders. There's a heat, there's kind of a restless quality more in the center of my body. And I can start exploring, huh? Is it the tightness that equals anxiety? Well, it's just tightness if I just focus on that part. Is it the heat? Well, no, that heat, and it kind of has this funny feeling to it. Uh, and that's just heat. And if I look at all these elements, they're just elements. And they actually come and go. They change over time. So instead of this big, bad concept of anxiety looming over my head like a thunderstorm, you know, that might scare us the first time we hear thunder, 
we can start exploring, oh, what's a, you know, what's a thunderstorm? Oh, it's, it's rain, it's lightning, it's wind, it's this and that. It's all these elements. Oh, now I know what this is. It's less scary. There's more certainty. We can do the same thing with anxiety and at the same time cultivate our curiosity. Oh, what does this feel like? Oh, does it change over time? Oh, where is it in my body? And each time we go, oh, that's a sign that we're awakening and fostering our curiosity. Hmm. I love this. Well, and you practice this. More you just often. did it. You just did it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Right? Hmm. That's is my another <laughs> indicator of curiosity. Yeah. 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 <laughs> awesome. I love it. All right, I have I have two more questions for you. So so this one's this one's more personal. How do you manage your mental and emotional well being? What are your go to strategies? Well, I would say the first piece is around understanding. You know, the more I started understanding how my mind worked, the better I was able mm -hmm. to work with it. And so that's key for all of us, I would say. And actually there's, you know, I would say 90% of our problems are caused by things related to reward-based learning. So just knowing that basic habit loop and mapping that out is, I, I look to that as my go-to, like, okay, what is this? Can I map it out? And then also the second step really is, can I inject a little bit of curiosity in? like what's happening? Am I judging myself? Am I judging somebody else? Am I worrying? Am I spinning too far out into the future? Can I dial that back to today? Like what needs to be done today? And between those two, you know, just, yeah. it's about rinse and repeat. You know, it, it seems to be helpful with just about everything, especially because the more I'm curious, the more it alleviates the anxiety and the more the curiosity builds on itself because it feels so good. Yeah. All right. And last question. What's your definition of well-being? What a great question. <laughs> hmm. What's my definition of well-being? This is my this is my research. <laughs> yeah. No, this is great. So I would say, just riffing on that question, I would say you know, it, it might sound obvious, but I'm going to say there's a mental and a physical element mm -hmm. where there's a level of contentment, both in the mind and the body. There's a level of, you know, maybe just a, a slight hint of ode joy where there's, you know, like when we're, when we're content, it, it, it's not like screaming at us with excitement, <laughs> but it's kind of like, oh, you know, there's a slight pleasantness to it. But the other piece I would say is that there's a level of connection, mm. both connection with myself, where I'm I'm connected with myself. I'm not judging myself. I'm not trying to change, you know, my who I am, but also a level of connection with the rest of the world, feeling connected. And I think that can take many forms. So I'll just I'll just leave it at at, at that broad term. Yeah, but so much wisdom in that definition. So thank you for that. Well, Dr. Brewer, this was such a insightful, helpful conversation for, for me personally. And I know uh, many of our listeners will feel the same. So thank you for taking the time to, to explain all of this to us. It was my pleasure. I'm so grateful Dr. Brewer could be with us today to talk about habit loops and anxiety. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. 
You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.